0: Nick Sumphauser, part two.
1: What have you been up to? What do you want to talk about?
0: I'm at, yeah, I'm at a point now where nothing seems crazy to me. I'm open to anything maybe except flat earth. Um, so I really want to hear what pushed you over the edge of creationism.
1: What happened uh, last Friday is I listened to a sermon by a Catholic priest who is also a young earth creationist. The topic of his sermon was about Mary, but he just mentioned in an offhand way that one way we can know that evolution is not the case is that there's only one immaculate conception and it's Mary. And so if Adam were conceived in the womb of a non-human creature, then he would have had to have been immaculately conceived, conceived without sin because he was without sin until he fell from grace. And the church teaches that Mary is unique in her Immaculate Conception. She is the Immaculate Conception. And so uh, that was enough to tip me over the edge. So what do you mean specifically by young Earth special creationism? I mean, I do believe in the scattering of the languages and Tower of Babel. And I do believe that there's a catastrophic worldwide flood that Noah survived by the grace of God with his Ark. I do believe these things, like all this sort of Sunday school storybook versions of all the stories i do tend to believe them and take them literally in that way my church encourages me to exercise prudence and moderation and to look at the science and to be reasonable but my basic default position is to sort of go with that sunday school version so i don't have a timeline in terms of matching my young earth model to all the science and the bones and the fossils and geology and anthropology and the history of civilizations and all this sort of thing I haven't done that and I'm not interested in doing that. I'll let other people do that. People that are interested in that really hairy, complicated analysis of mountains and mountains of data in the natural world. I'm not interested in that. doesn't interest me at all. I always think about the problem of induction and how hard it is to figure out the pattern. There are many ways to match models to data and uh, as you can see just by surveying sort of the landscape of young earth creationism and old earth creationism and intelligent design and theistic evolution and atheistic evolution and they're all doing the same project they're all matching the data to fit their model and uh, i hope they enjoy that but that's not the kind of stuff that i enjoy
0: interesting so what distinguishes your method of achieving truth to what you've distinguished as theirs
1: well first of all i've come to monotheism through solipsism so i have a deductive approach that brings me from solipsism to monotheism. And if I'm wrong, then I'm not wrong. Because if I'm wrong when I say that I'm not God, then I'm God. And God is not wrong. So that means that God is God. So we're back to monotheism. And then from there, it's about, uh, you know, the history of Jesus Christ. Who is he? What claims did he make? What did the Jews prophesy about the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Yes or no? Was he a Muslim? Yes or no? And then once we're into Christianity, then I examine the authority of the canon of scripture, the authority of the Catholic Church, the sacraments, and everything else. And then I end up being a Roman Catholic. So I have divine revelation. I have an infallible church and an infallible God that gives us the infallible church. And I have dogmas. So you have natural sciences, you have philosophy above that, and above that you have theology, and above theology you have God himself. So my deductive approach, now that I'm in the privileged position of being a Roman Catholic, I can point to the dogmas as absolutely certain, more certain than anything else, more certain than my senses, more certain than my reasoning, more certain than anything else. And I can adapt everything, I can interpret everything, all the data, in terms of those dogmas. So the dogmas take precedence for me.
0: I think that there is such a um, a piece that you must experience to have that um, framework, that cognitive framework that you can hang your hat on. And I, I definitely envy that, and I envy you, and I and I do hope to be able to reach that point where navigating this world is not traumatic for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I was just listening to a couple of lectures on my way to work, on my way from work and at lunch, and uh, I could just feel my spirit soaring. I could feel my soul being uplifted. And it's the same thing when I do spiritual reading. I don't want necessarily to feel consolation all the time, but I do get a lot of consolation from spiritual reading and occasionally from a good Catholic lecture or talk or a sermon.
0: Mm. I was recently having a um, conversation with a, a Lutheran pastor, a friend of mine. And I always thought that the difference between Lutheranism and Catholicism had its roots just in transubstantiation, and that was it. Um, and he said, no, that is that is a snowflake on the glacier that is barely scratching the surface of our differences. Um, and he made the argument that it was actually the instantiation of Catholicism and the church as the religion of the state of Rome that was sort of the divergence from what Christ had intended. And so... Uh, He said as a confessionalist Lutheran, the actual church, the most true version of the church is sola fide, sola scriptura, you know, by the gospel alone. Um, And he said a few other things, but do you have any, any thoughts on that or or anything that might be able to clear up the distinction for me?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you can look at Luther, look at his life before his revolt, look at what he did after his revolt and you know ask yourself if this is a good and holy man if this is a man that you want to follow and look at the contradictions in his own teachings and look at his hatred towards those who are following his advice most closely you know Zwingli and Calvin and anyone anyone that picked up his ball and ran with it just look at how he mocked and ridiculed and despised them look at the man look at how he behaves and what he taught and come to your own decision and look at the history of the church and where he falls in that timeline. Now, there is something you mentioned about the worldliness of the church in Rome, in the city of Rome and elsewhere. There is something to be said for that critique. There is a lot of worldliness in the church. Even today, there is worldliness in the church. That's the human component. So, when you see people buying the offices in the papacy and in the bishoprics and... Uh, buying the power, buying the privilege, and then having a life of luxury and and wealth and corruption and sex and sin, I think it's fair to say that that church is corrupt and that church is worldly. Now, there's a very, very, very important distinction that needs to be made between the use of the word church as pertaining to the members and then the the use of the word church, which is that mystical body of Christ, which is the mystical and spotless bride of Jesus Christ. The church is, by her own definition, a perfect society, meaning that all of the means of salvation are there. And uh, the church, of course, is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And that holiness is real. It's not just a fancy label. It really is holy because Jesus Christ is holy and Christ and his church are one. This is a deep mystery, as St. Paul said. So we really need to hold in tension the fact that the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic and that it is at the same time a hospital for sinners. But the way I like to resolve that tension, or at least give a way to distinguish the baby from the bathwater, is to point to the other two components of the church. We don't only have this messy, ugly component in the church militant, we also have the church suffering in purgatory, which is being purified, and of course the church triumphant in heaven, which is fully and completely purified. So, There's no excuse really to isolate our vision to the church militant, to point to the pedophile priests, to point to the popes who are rich and vain and uh, perverted in many ways. There's no excuse to focus only on that one third of the church. We need to realize that we are in need of purification. That's why the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And so when we look at purgatory and we look at heaven, we see a three-stage process that's enabling us to stand before God because nothing impure can stand before God.
0: I always thought that Catholics and Lutherans were extremely similar, and I guess I think the the division runs far deeper than I had ever perceived.
1: Yeah, I mean the the, the central issue for me, if you want to have sort of my bullet points on it, that the top bullet point for me is authority. Where do the Lutherans get their authority? Where do they get their canon of Scripture? Where do they get their Bible? They got it from the Holy Roman Catholic Church. There's absolutely no way. For them to deny that or provide any sort of counter explanation, it's, it's just a historical fact. To remain Protestant, it is not a problem of the intellect. It's only a problem of the will. It's only because they do not want to become members of the horror of Babylon, which is how they see it, right? They really have a hard time. I think the problem is humility. They have a lack of humility. They're not willing to stoop to be part of something that is so embarrassing. The Holy Roman Catholic Church is very embarrassing here below. Now, once you have that humility, and once you are dead to self, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, then that's not a problem. You know, you you can very easily be subject to mockery and ridicule and scorn by the world, and by the Protestants and by everyone else who hates the Catholic Church, because you have that pearl of great price, and you're willing to suffer and die with Jesus Christ. It's a joy. It's a real joy.
0: Fascinating. I would love to get uh, this pastor on your show. I think I might reach out to him and see if he's interested his name is Pastor Christopher Tolema. Yeah. So,
1: are you like naturally drawn to Lutheranism because of the good music? That's what I think. What I think about uh, <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach is one of my favorites, and he was a Lutheran.
0: No, I am. I am not drawn to Lutheranism. I've been more steeled in my atheism over the last uh, several weeks since we've last talked. Um, I've been exploring more jumping back into the literature and whatnot and and i don't know if it's just the sources that i've been reading but i happened it seems that every source and resource that i've experienced thus far has only pushed me further into uh, my atheism despite them being religious christian or catholic sources so i am curious to see where this
1: next year takes me so, I can't remember actually the last time we spoke if you touched on some of your anxieties that have to do with mortality and uh, existential angst and this sort of thing. To the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, just talk a little bit about existential angst, please.
0: Yeah, the language that I'm using now is the trauma of being. And I think Freddie Mercury had a great quote. It was, I don't know if he said this in real life or if it was just in the, you know, the recent film Bohemian Rhapsody, but he said, being human is a condition that requires a certain amount of anesthetic, which I, I find to be poignant and a slippery slope. So I, I try and make sure that, you know, I don't reach for the anesthetic, though I, I do commiserate with his feelings there. So I am afraid of hell, though I don't believe it exists. And that seriously shapes how, how I live. I don't engage in casual sex. I try and be chaste. I try and be polite. And a lot of that which was thrown at me has stuck from a young age. And I do still fear hell, despite the intellectual belief not being there. And so I struggle with a fear of death constantly, um, uh, you know, over email, we've talked about this as well. My experience with uh, high amounts of THC has sort of ripped a hole in my perception of reality. And I'm still working on suturing that back up a little bit day by day. So there's a lot of, of growth and transformation there and sort of how I see existence and in reality and the void looking back at me. And I think to anyone who hasn't experienced psychedelics or marijuana that those words probably mean nothing but to those who have they probably understand a little bit of the trauma that can come from staring into the void with the aid of these substances so I think that I'm better than I've ever been mentally and emotionally but I've also never been where I am at the moment Uh, I'm in definitely a different terrain and uh, I'm interested how this year is going to take me to different places so
1: my whole trip into the dark world of existential angst and this intense anxiety was triggered by experimentation with marijuana and magic mushrooms the church teaches that these are you know gateways to the demonic and they're they're an opening and uh, i believe that
0: yeah it's interesting that that you mentioned psilocybin mushrooms. I'm actually planning on incorporating them in the, the journey here of the prodigal, because I believe that any discussion of God that is without psychedelia is an anemic discussion. I think that the religions of the world prior to the, the monotheistic religions of these have always been, you know, an aspect of the ritual, whether it was ayahuasca in Peru or peyote in Mexico and psilocybin in these different places. However, after listening to Alex Jones on Joe Rogan and him say that you're ripping a hole into another dimension where demons come through, it definitely gave me pause.
1: (laughs) For sure. For sure. I mean, I I would have to recommend that you stay away from drugs, but um, I would focus on the positive side of what you're going through, which is, you know, um, St. Augustine said that the desire to believe is already belief and the desire to praise already prayer.
0: Well, maybe, maybe that's sort of what the mission of this film has to be, which is to go through the motions, act it out, have that desire, that genuine desire. Cause if I truly am trying to prove myself wrong, that that takes the form of having faith, having belief. I am trying to do it in a non-religious way so that, you know, I don't, a religion and then go for it i'm trying to do it in more of just a you know focus on the entity of god and move toward that and then the religion will come second but I, do you have any advice for me if i were to you know follow a, a sticky note checklist of pursuing a belief in god what would be a couple of the things that would be on there
1: my first intuition tells me focus on your death Think about the fact that you could die at any moment. You don't know how you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. Think about the futility of life and think about the vanity of life. Think about judgment and think about your sinfulness and your unworthiness and think about how ungrateful you are to the God who created you out of nothing and gave you the freedom to choose good or evil and how you chose evil many times and you're not in a state of grace you're in a state of sin so if you die you go to hell so you have to think about that and on the more intellectual side i would just think about the fact that you exist are you the source of your own existence yes or no am i existence itself is my essence existence think about that think just turn it over in your mind you know in the worst case scenario by meditating on the fact of your existence the bare fact of your existence You know, the worst case scenario, you end up some sort of uh, Buddhist, uh, but uh, you have dabbled in Buddhism, no?
0: Oh, very much. Yeah. And, And it's interesting you mentioned that. So for the last several weeks since we've talked, I've been experiencing what you outlined there. It's called ego death. I've been experiencing that as I'm falling asleep at night where there's no longer a Nick there. It's similar to what I experienced when I was high out of my mind on THC, where I'm just looking into the void and there is only, there is only being, there is no more Nick. And that's been inexplicable. I'm not really sure what's going on there.
1: Mm. Not not a very pleasant experience. I know what it's like. Um, I don't know if you've seen that movie by Kubrick, uh, 2001. Yes. I'm not a fan, but I think there's some sort of black obelisk or something. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. Well, there was something like that. That was a sort of image about what I am, like as God, like when I was a solipsist, I was God and I was just this if you can picture black on black, so I was the black sort of obelisk in a black space. And of course, there's no space, no time. There's just the raw fact of my being, but it's sort of like this black on black image where I can't see anything, but I have this impression that I'm an oblong, sort of rectangular shaped, really solid, dense piece of metal or ebony or whatever it is. And uh, after coming to God, I realized That there's some sort of symbolic value to this rigid body that's like of a certain length, width, and breadth. The notion of a ruler, you know, we can think about a ruler in two senses. One, like the school teacher gives you a ruler to draw straight lines with, and it's a standard of measurement, right? And there's that idea of rectitudinal, uh, you know, righteousness is built into that straight line. And then on the other hand of ruler, there's that idea of a ruler, one who rules, one who is the king. So we have the standard the standard of measurement, the standard of righteousness, the standard of straightforwardness, the standard of truth, the standard of morality. And um, we also have that notion of a ruler, someone that's sovereign. When I was a hard solipsist, it was very bleak, it was very black, and it was very lonely, very, very lonely, and not a nice place to be. But even in the depths of that darkness, there was this notion of a ruler, of a standard, basically of a sovereign king. And uh, I was not happy being that king. And I was very, very, very happy when I was able to cede my place and to give that to the one true God. Now, the one true God, as it happens, is triune. So he's not lonely. He's not a black ruler sitting in a black universe. He is full of life and love and peace and joy and happiness and everything else, right? So it really is a night and day situation where now I have the sun shining on me, the glory and the joy and the life of the Trinity. And, uh, it's wonderful. And I'm going to enter into that and I'll be discovering that for all of eternity. If God willing, I make it to heaven. It
0: does sound <laughs> like a beautiful picture, man. It does.
1: That black rectangle in the dark sky. Does that resonate with you at all? <laughs> no,
0: no, no, not, not quite. I would say this is more of just an experience of, of raw terror at the awareness of existence, you know, where you're just coming to terms with your own existence and that you are not, I guess, in in the black on black example, there is no difference between me and existence. There is only existence. And that, you know, when I experienced that, it's sort of like if I had to pick some sort of religious type thing, maybe it'd be pantheist, you know, which is the hippiest of all of them. But it's, I sort of do understand that having experienced it, like there is truly no difference between nick and anything else because nick is an illusion there is only existence Mm. and i i wanted to know sort of how much stock do you put in the sensation of being convinced
1: yeah i don't trust myself this is one of the central teachings of the catholic church is that you should not trust any human being ever not even the pope but you know you can sort of trust those who Admit that they're not trustworthy. You can trust those who do not point to themselves, but who point to the example of the saints or the example of Jesus Christ. And if one of my favorite images of the church is just a series of people pointing to those who are just a little bit higher up on the hierarchy. And I'm not speaking about the hierarchy in terms of deacon, priest, bishop, cardinal, and pope. I'm talking in terms of the hierarchy of holiness. So you could have a a pope who is a miserable sinner who is pointing up to a child who is a holy and faithful catholic right so you could have that sort of hierarchy where on one hierarchy the pope is higher but on another hierarchy the one that i'm talking about the pope is lower than even a child with a simple faith in god so um, there's a sort of comfort that i take in that chain of holiness and the hierarchy and the intermediaries and the fact that we have saints of all different degrees and levels And certainly, I place myself at the lowest echelon of that hierarchy of holiness, but it's comforting having all those uh, in between me and God Almighty, because it can be very overwhelming to uh, put you in the position of, for example, a Muslim, a good Muslim sees God as completely transcendent, there's absolutely no way that God will come down onto earth and to have sort of bridge that gap, you have to just resign yourself to the fact that he's the boss, he's up in the sky, it's his way or the highway. And uh, we can't discern his ways, we just need to go with his arbitrary will, and he's a little bit of a dictator, very distant, very cold, and he's certainly not a father. So I want you to connect, uh, if possible, to that sort of chain uh, that is very human, and God himself chose to take on our flesh, and to be human in all things but sin. But... uh, to wrap up this part two episode, can you talk to the listeners about something you're excited about something positive? Just talk to us about the very short-term future for you, for yourself.
0: Sure. Well, I think um, I'll talk about probably the most transformative book that I've ever read. I just finished it since the time that we talked last. I, I read it. It was a 1200 page book called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I think that the Objectivist philosophy is the closest thing to religion that I could possibly adhere to. And then this has had a a very positive impact on my life, and I can see it having a compounding interest over the years. And the central tenet is this, I swear by my life and my love of it, that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. On its own, it, it might sound harsh and uh, immoral, but I, I encourage who, whomever's listening uh, to read Atlas Shrugged because I think she makes a very good case for rational self-interest as the highest moral virtue that we can have as humans. And to, for me, it's been very uh, liberating and clarifying as a, as a person moving through my life. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you got to do is ask.
1: All you got to do is ask.